God, our loving Father, we pause before your word now and ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us not only into the understanding of your word, but into what it takes to live out your word in our everyday lives. And Father, we come before you uh, and ask that as we uh, open your word, that you would open our hearts, that you would be at work within us. Father, we lay down at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts, that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We lift up those relationships in our lives that are strained, and we pray for your peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift up those whom we know and love who are sick, who are facing uncertain diagnoses or recovering from medical procedures, and we pray your healing mercies upon your people. We lift up our country and its leaders. We pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up our men and women in uniform and ask that you would watch over and protect them, bring them home safely. Lord, we um, lift up your church here at Hope and around the world, and we pray that we would be your light and that we would shed and shine your love on this dark and hurting world. Father, that um, what we do here today and throughout the week ahead would be glorifying to you. And we lift up those churches with whom we have relationships. I think of my friend Tom Gibbs at Redeemer Prez, and we pray your blessing over that work. I lift up uh, Pastor Craig Grubbs at New Hope Covenant on the west side of our city, and we just pray your blessing over what you're doing there, and also his wife Leslie at Urban Connection, and we just ask that you would continue to bless and prosper that ministry. Lord, we lift up those who've gone out from hope to serve you elsewhere. We think of Brad and Dawn Sims in Elysian Fields, Texas, and Patrick and Melanie Cobb in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and Jason and Meg Wood in Covington, Louisiana, and Darden and Belinda Kaler in St. Peter's, Missouri. And we pray your blessing over those works of your spirit. We lift up the missionaries around the world whom we support in Beirut, Lebanon, in Guatemala, in Laredo, Texas, in Cuba, and elsewhere in the Middle East. And we just pray your continued blessing over those works. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We are in a series of messages uh, through the first few chapters of the book of Romans right now. And I'll just give you a little bit of background for the sake of our reading this morning, which will be uh, chapter 3 of the book of Romans. We uh, sort of started the study with, uh, in chapter 1 as Paul greets a church that he's never met. He's never seen uh, this group of people and he's writing to them because he cares. And he's, he has seen several churches, several young churches, uh, kind of get off on the right foot and then uh, gradually be steered away from the truth. And so he's writing this letter to try to uh, anchor them in the truth uh, while he awaits an opportunity to go and visit them personally. And so he started off with just this beautiful display of the righteousness of God and what that means and how we're all connected to each other uh, in Christ. And then he sort of flipped the coin and took a look at the ugliness of humanity and all that's uh, displayed there through uh, our sin nature. And then um, he... uh, sort of played with that contrast a little bit, as we saw at the end of chapter 2 last week. 
And today, he begins to take up uh, more directly this theme of faith. And what is faith? What does it mean? What is it? How does it work? And so, I want you to have that in mind as we read through this passage of um, Romans chapter 3. What is faith? How does it work? And what are we to take away from this passage for ourselves? So follow along uh, either in your bulletin or on the screen behind me or in a a Bible of your choosing. And I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 3 out of the ESV translation. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show 
his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In 1981, medical science was thrown a curveball unlike any other it had seen prior to that time. That curveball became known as the HIV virus, first identified in 1981. And no one could figure out initially how the virus was spreading, how the virus replicated itself, and what was really going on at the root of this problem. Um, I'll just say this as an aside. uh, Christianity kind of blew it uh, when that first came to light. Uh, We, collectively, as American evangelicals, essentially said... That's what they deserve. That was the base response of Christianity at that time. And unfortunately, much of the world kind of agreed with that sentiment initially, except for the few doctors and researchers who were really trying to understand what this virus was and what it meant. They knew that something of global epidemic proportions was breaking loose on the world. And they knew that this was going to be an impossible uh, virus to stop, at least in the short term. And they were right. And one of the things that that really um, sort of caught researchers off guard initially was the fact that this is what they call a retrovirus which I'm not going to try to get into the specifics of the science of that except to just say it works uh, almost in an opposite way from the way viruses normally replicate. And so it's extremely complicated to figure out what's going on and how it's working. Um, Of course, the other problem with the, the HIV virus is it attacks cells in the immune system. And, and so as it goes into our immune cells, to human immune cells, it replicates and destroys those cells. So most people infected with HIV die of some common ailment like the cold that the rest of us can fight off relatively easily. Um, all of that to say... Um, 
it took a while for science to figure out what they were really dealing with, and we're still in the process, scientifically and medically, of trying to figure out how to treat this particular disease. Um, all of that to say that, that you may have heard me say before that Christianity works kind of like a virus. It's, it's something, our faith is something that has to be caught. It's not something that I can um, teach you. It's something that you have to catch and sort of be infected by through uh, human relationships, human contact, through the people you know and love and the way they represent uh, this faith. And I want to sort of propose this morning as we try to wrap our minds around what the Apostle Paul was saying to this young church um, that faith is sort of a a retrovirus in, in effect. It works very differently from the rest of that which we are familiar with as human beings. It's hard to get our minds around. It's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp and analyze because it's something that works fundamentally differently from the rest of the way things work in our lives. So if we're going to uh, get this whole faith thing, uh, we need to sort of pause in this chapter and take a look at a couple of the things that Paul is trying to say because faith works very differently from the things in the rest of our lives. First of all, Paul is saying, if you're trying to grasp what faith is, if you're trying to get your your mind and your heart and your soul around this faith thing, don't try to do it on your own. Here's what I mean by this, and we'll, we'll sort of get into this in these first opening verses of uh, chapter 3. First, Paul sort of goes into a, a strange um, rebuttal of other people's arguments against his ministry, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, Paul had uh, many opponents in his day, most of whom were had grown up Jewish, as Paul did, and they came to accept and receive Jesus as their Messiah, but they also began to impose upon other Christians who did not grow up Jewish, uh, Jewish laws, dietary laws. You heard a reference to circumcision in here, um, dress code, behavioral expectations. And Paul is sort of saying, no, Christianity, the faith that comes through Jesus Christ works differently than this system that we have been working for all of these centuries. And so the, Paul sort of begins his uh, charge that we not try to make faith happen on our own uh, with this sort of weird way of saying you, you cannot back into faith. Here's, here's what I mean. Um, you hear Paul in those opening verses saying things like, you know, what is the value of circumcision? Uh, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Uh, 
what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And he's saying you can't, you can't trick God. Um, the argument that people were making to Paul was, okay, you're telling me it doesn't matter if I'm not faithful to the Jewish code. Paul would say, that's right. And they would say, that's crazy. We've never heard anything like this. And Paul would say, well, we're, we're, we're dealing with something that is fundamentally different than the system we've all grown up with. And so Paul tries to say to his early followers that our sin does not negate or nullify God's justice. Um, those who were opposed to what Paul was saying were essentially arguing that Paul was teaching people that they should sin more because the more they sin, the more God's grace is at work in the world. Does that make sense? That was the accusation, that if you're teaching people that the Jewish law doesn't matter, then you're encouraging sin so that there can be a greater infusion of grace into the world. And Paul says that's crazy. It's not what I'm saying. And you can't back your way in to this faith thing. Your sin does not negate God's sense of justice. That is, God is holy, and God is pure, and God is righteous, and we are not. And so we can't sort of get onto equal ground with God by accusing him of being guilty with us in our sin, if that makes any sense, which is sort of what Paul was being accused of. So our sin does not negate God's justice, and our sin does not bring about good. That was the argument against Paul's teaching. Um, Paul basically says, you know, let's remember that the covenant of grace since the time of Adam and Eve has always been one-sided. There's sin on one side and righteousness on the other. And through God's love, he brings the two ends together by satisfying his, his sense of justice through the death of Christ. That is, someone is going to willingly pay for those sins. And once they have, forgiveness is granted to all for whom that person has died. So, you can't back your way in. Um, let me try to put this, if, you know, if Paul were here talking to this church, he would probably not put things in terms of circumcision and the Jewish law. Here's what he would probably say. Um, he would probably say something to the effect of, being a good person, being a good person is not enough to justify you before God. Even good people have sins and have failures and shortcomings and flaws. And so all of us are on level ground before God. So being a good person won't get you into heaven, so to speak, okay? And 
then Paul would say, is it good to be a good person? Well, yeah, it's good to be a good person. There's nothing wrong with being a good person. That's not the point. We're trying to get our minds and souls around this idea of faith. And it works fundamentally differently than the rest of life. And so Paul begins by pointing out we can't back our way into this faith thing. And then he tells us that we can't obey our way into this faith thing. All of us are in the same boat spiritually. And we just talked about that a little bit. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul points out later in this passage. Um, If I can just uh, share a point of amazement with you for a minute. Uh, The Apostle Paul was, we would call it, legally blind at this point in his life. His uh, sight is, is severely impaired, and he is using... A, a scribe to whom he is dictating this letter. So I want you to just watch this for a second, okay? Paul basically is trying to argue against the Jewish leadership in the church who is saying, if you want to be right with God, then get with it and let's start following the laws of God and behaving in these certain ways. And let's, it's, it's a lot of work. So let's get to work. And Paul says, um, I need to make something very clear. Those of you who are Jewish and Christians who think you are better than everyone else, hear me clearly. You are not any better than anyone else. And that's true whether we start as Jewish or any other way. None of us are any better than anyone else. And Paul says, um, to, to sort of solidify that point, that point being that all of us are in the same boat, we cannot obey our way into the good graces of God. We're all in the same boat. We're all tainted by sin. Paul then quotes, this is off the top of his head. You with me? And he just starts rolling through the Psalms. He quotes, this is not in order, but he quotes from Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 14, Psalm 36, Psalm 53, Psalm 140. And then he throws in a quote from Proverbs chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 59, just for good measure just to drive home one simple point. We are all on level ground before our creator. None of us are any better than anyone else. This is equality 101. Um, And if I can go back to my opening illustration, uh, this is why Christianity failed in our response to AIDS initially. Every human being is created in the image of God and therefore bears God-given dignity. And so when one of us suffers, regardless of why, we should all be concerned. We should all have compassion and we should all take action. And so Paul says we're all in the same boat. And if you don't believe me, let me just 
run you through the Psalms real quick. Because those were written to those of you who think you're better than everyone else. And they point out very clearly, we're all in the same boat. So we're all in the same boat. And following the law, Paul's next point, if you will, only yields humility. That is to say, if we try to obey the law of God fully and completely, um, we will fail. And failure is its own sense of equality and brings its own consequence of humility. Uh, There was a guy, oh, I don't know, four or five years ago, who decided, and I, I don't know why he decided this, I sort of think he was trying to point something out as to how ridiculous he thinks the Bible is. But he decided he was going to follow every rule in the Bible for one year. Okay, This is almost as crazy as like you're going to live alone on an island in Alaska for one year. Okay, um, But uh, he decided he was going to follow every rule in the Bible for one year. He ran into several problems. Okay? Um, because not all of the rules were intended to be obeyed at once. Uh, so there are places in the Bible that prohibit the drinking of wine. There are other places in the Bible that prescribe and require the drinking of wine, the Passover feast being one example. All right? And uh, so this guy tried and failed. For one year. And I haven't read the book. I just kind of saw it, heard it, heard him interviewed somewhere and kind of went, what an idiot. But, you know, I'm glad he tried it. And I'm glad he proved Paul's point that's been sitting right here for a couple of thousand years. We cannot obey our way into God's grace. We cannot follow the law without yielding within ourselves a sense of humility that our righteousness will never measure up to that of our creator. And so, Paul sort of uh, turns the coin over again in the second part of this, this chapter as he has sort of gone to great length to roll out the futility of trying to achieve grace on our own He then turns and calls us to depend upon grace alone for uh, the key to engaging our faith. Paul reminds us in verses 21 through 26 that we are to place our faith in Christ alone. That it is Christ who has fulfilled all of the Old Testament law and all of the Old Testament prophecies. That OT stands for Old Testament if you needed help there. Um, So we see here another purpose behind God's law. The first purpose we saw was that it should bring us to a point of humility before the the cross, where where we cry out and say, God, I can't. I need your grace. I need your love. I need your mercy. And the second purpose of the law that we see in this passage is it should point us to the cross, to that place where forgiveness 
is found, where love is received or extended and received. Um, and so Paul points out, and I want to go back to, I'm not sure which verse it is right now, but I'll tell you in just a moment. Um, verse 2 Paul says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That word uh, in, in the language that Paul is writing in, which is common Greek at the time this was written, uh, is the word logos. We use that word all the time in biology, the logi, the logos. Um, anything that ends with logi or logi in Latin or whatever, I missed my language, it's Greek, forgive me. Um, That word means sort of the ultimate essence of whatever it is that we're looking at. So if it's life, biology is the study, the the getting to the ultimate essence of life. Um, Geology would be getting to the ultimate essence of the earth and what it is, what it's made of, how it works, etc. You get the idea. Paul says that the Jewish people were were vested with this ultimate essence of God in in their life and in their worship and in their community and every aspect of their world. They were the people who were vested with this gift, this essence of God. And that Christ, he now points out, is the fulfillment of all that was invested or all that was vested in the Jewish life. That Christ has come and he has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and the Old Testament law. The law points us to Christ. Jesus fulfills all and he satisfies God's justice. So, Part of the concern that, that Jews who had become Christians, who had recognized Jesus as Messiah, part of their concern with what Paul was teaching was very simple. That you are telling people that it's okay to be sinful. And, and, and if you're telling people that, then you're negating God's sense of justice. You're saying it doesn't matter. Paul says, no, you're totally misunderstanding me. God is just. He's he's loving, he's forgiving, he's patient, he's kind, he's righteous, he's holy, he's pure, and he is just. And so his justice must be satisfied. That is, if, if a transgression has been committed, it will be brought to justice. We understand this concept, at least in our society, that wrongs, have a, we have a responsibility to make them right. And God says, or Paul says that, that God has that same sense of justice. He's where justice comes from. And when his wrath is poured out upon Christ on the cross, his divine justice is satisfied. And we find pardon, forgiveness, grace, um, Paul uses a couple of different words here. Um, the best one is translated in this version of the Bible as propitiation, which is a really fancy 
squirrely word, but the original language, that word comes from the word mercy seat. It's the word that Paul would have used to refer to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know what was in the Ark of the Covenant, among other things? The law of God, the Ten Commandments, the the tablets that God handed to Moses were in the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid of that Ark had two divine beings, on either, one on either side, and it formed with their wings a seat. No one ever sat there. It was the mercy seat of God. It was his judgment seat where he could rightfully sit to judge all of humankind. And because of what Christ did by offering his perfect and sinless life as a sacrifice, that judgment seat became a seat of mercy, a seat of grace and forgiveness. And Paul says that is the place. Once a year, the high priest would slaughter a bull and a ram, and he would take the blood into that holy of holies, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of God. And Paul says, it's over. The, 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 the blood that brought God's mercy seat to bear on our souls was the blood of Christ. He laid down the final sacrifice, and we are forgiven. We are in, if you will. And so Paul says, place all of your faith in Christ alone. He's fulfilled the Old Testament and the law. He's satisfied God's justice. And so we must base our claim for good standing before God on faith alone, not on our own efforts, not on our own goodness, if you will. And this is a call to relate to God completely differently, in a completely different manner than we relate to the rest of the world. Um, So those of you who are in school, you go to class, you do some homework, you take a few quizzes, you take a test, what do you get? A grade. What was that? A D. Okay, well... A grade. We'll just generalize. We don't need to be specific. You, you get a grade. You know, I guess we could argue that what you should say in response to that question is you get an education. You, you learn something. You're a better person, right? But what are we most concerned about? When, when you come home with the report card, does your parents look at you? Do they look at you and say, are you a better person? Because you learned all these things, are you? No, that's not what they say. It's not at all what they say. In fact, they might look right past four good grades and go right to what? The bad grade, the D. They may, they may, they will. This is a guarantee. 
And what you really learn through this is the way life works. Because not only did you get a grade in that class, but that grade is then turned into some kind of math equation and then calculates what's called your class rank, right? And your class rank is used to, to, to sort of scale you against all these other people who are doing the same thing you are, and then someone somewhere is going to determine who's better than everyone else. Is that my wrong? And we get into life, and we sort of move from grades to, I don't know, money? And that becomes our grading system for determining who's better than everybody else, maybe? I don't know. You're kind of with me, I think. Position, status, whatever, doesn't matter. We grade each other, and we're all caught up in this process of working and striving to better ourselves, to improve our position, to give ourselves and our families more security, more stability. None of those are necessarily bad things. But this virus that we are to be infected with as Christians works differently. Do you know one of the fundamental things that God calls out of his people? It's in the Ten Commandments. Rest. He wants us to be a people who can rest, who can be at ease spiritually because we know that he's got this. We're trusting in his strength alone, not in our own. And if we're really going to grasp and get this faith thing, we have to realize that it's not us. This one works in a completely different way. And we need to learn to rest, to trust, to be um, yielding to the will of God. I do not pretend that that is easy. Don't don't get me wrong. Those of you who know me, I'm not the most yielding of personalities, right? But this is what we are called to in Christ by faith. To relate to God in a completely different manner. And to relate to the law of God in a completely different manner. So through Christ, who fulfilled the law and satisfied God's justice, we are laid to rest in relation to the law. We're no longer under an obligation to fulfill the requirements of the law in order to be in good standing with God, which really never was the case, but it was our human misunderstanding that led us to believe that. And Paul says that it's changed. Our relationship to the law has changed from one of fear and dread at the failure to fulfill to one of peace and joy, where when we watch God work through us and things that are consistent with the law of God come out of us naturally now because of what Christ has done, not because of us, there is joy. 
Life is not about following the law any longer. It is about following our heart, which has been purchased and redeemed by the one who fulfilled the law. The law is fulfilled by Christ. The pressure is off. We are called to enjoy God and to live from our hearts where Christ is at work. Will you pray with me? God, our loving Father, we marvel at your word, at how it's ancient and yet very present, very alive, very active within us. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work by your Holy Spirit to make us into a people who can yield to you, who can rest in you, who can relate to you under these new terms of faith, that we can lay down our striving and our fear and take hold of your grace to know that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. May we live and rest in that peace through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.